you will open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6, and the title of this sermon is The Difference Between Good News and Fake News. Well, in John's day, there was a serious issue of false teaching. Uh, We've discussed this as we've walked through 1 John. Uh, We've discussed the Gnostics who taught that Jesus was divine, but not truly human. There were the Cerinthians, who were a subgroup within the Gnostics, who taught that Jesus was divine, but that his divinity left him right before he went to the cross. Back then, there was a serious issue of false teaching, both inside and outside the church. Aren't you glad that we don't have to deal with that anymore? (laughs) If you can't sense the sarcasm there, I'm being sarcastic. Friends, the issue of false teaching is alive and well in our day and age in the church. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Reading, Benny Hinn on TBN, Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church. I could keep going. False teachers are rampant in our day and age. And here's the deal. They all claim to speak on behalf of God. All of these guys that I've just listed, unfortunately, have massive followings. They're deceiving thousands and even hundreds of thousands of men and women all around the world with something that has the veneer of Christianity, but isn't. I love Shailen's song. He's a rapper, and he has this song called False Teachers. And I'll just read you a couple of the lines. He says, don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's your God. He's not your God. Money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is. He came to redeem us from sin. And that's the message forever I'll yell. If you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. Turn off TBN. That channel is overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. Then he goes on to name several popular false teachers by name. It's fantastic. So here's the million dollar question for you. How do we know what's true and what's error? If you've followed the news the last couple of years, you know that out there in the culture, fake news and misinformation are the buzzwords. How do we know which news outlets we can trust and which ones are misleading us? That's an issue. But how much more important is it when it comes to eternal truth? When it comes to what's being taught in the name of Christ? We as a church can't afford to be indifferent. 
We have to care. We must be concerned about the difference between truth and error when it comes to Christian teaching. So, how do we know what's true and what's not? Let's dive into our text. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. To help us navigate today's text, we have four main points. Point one, the problem in verse one. Point two, the test in verses two and three. Point three, victory in verses four and five. And then finally, point four, truth and error in verse six. So let's get back into the text. Point one, the problem. Look with me again at verse one. He starts this section, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I love how John begins here. He says, Beloved, we've talked about this several times now in this letter, but each time John's imparting pastoral truth to these precious people in the church, he reminds them that they're loved. Beloved. Now understand this. It's pr- precisely because John loves them that he's warning them about these false teachers. If you love someone, you hate to see them be deceived, right? John loves these people, so he's warning them. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, Anyone who's concerned about doctrinal matters or anyone who would dare to call someone a false teacher is considered cranky, bigoted, and downright mean-spirited. I mean, to call out a false teacher today is considered the unpardonable sin. But that's backward. If you truly love someone, you don't want them to be deceived by a false teacher. Yes, there there are some people who give their lives to what's called discernment blogging. They see themselves as pastors to the internet, and they spend all day every day trying to ferret out something wrong in their perception with something someone said, usually out of context. They often quote small, out-of-context sound bites of pastors who are actually solid, and then assume the worst about them, trying to catch them mispronouncing something. That's not what I'm advocating for here. 
What I'm saying is, it's unloving to, to or it's, it's not unloving to have the category of false teacher in your mind as a Christian and to warn others when false teaching is actually there. Because John loves the church, he says to them, do not believe every spirit. Christian, not every spirit should be believed, even if they seem to display the supernatural. Pharaoh's magicians mimicked God's miracles in the books of, book of Exodus. They clearly weren't from God. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 7, verse 15? Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, false prophets are going to look a lot like sheep on the outside. We have to be discerning. Look what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the threat isn't just out there. Men speaking twisted things will come up from within the church. So do you have a category for this? Again, I'm not suggesting that we go around assuming the worst about everyone or questioning everything all the time. But we have to have discernment as Christians. We have to have a category for false teachers who often quote the Bible, by the way. Pretty much every heresy throughout church history came with Bible verses attached. They quoted the Bible out of context to teach their particular heresy. Back in our text, John says that many false prophets have gone out into the world. I know that I'm being repetitive here, but we can't miss this because this is still true today. Not everyone who claims to speak on behalf of God actually does. There are many false prophets out there, especially in the internet age, who spew half-truths all over the place and deceive millions. John says, do not believe every spirit. But what does he say? He says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He's saying every person who claims to speak on behalf of God has a motivating spirit behind them. Either that spirit is from God or it's not. So we're to test to see which it is. And what's the test? What's the test? Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Point 2, the test. He says, by this. You know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So what's the test? It's Christology, right? Christology meaning what you believe about Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible is fully divine. He's God. And he's fully man. He came in the flesh. This is the only way he could actually pay for our sin as our substitute. If he was really one of us. Further, and part of what John's getting at, what's the word right after Jesus in verse 2? Christ. And no, that's not his last name. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the one foretold about in the entire Old Testament, the one who would bring ultimate peace and rest, the one who would, would redeem, the one who would conquer God's enemies, the one who would come as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, the Christ, fully God and fully man. Is your Jesus the real Jesus. Now, throughout Christian history, there have been four major heresies regarding the person of Christ. And I'm going to quickly run through them for us. Number one, Arianism. Arianism was popularized by a guy named, you guessed it, Arius. And he taught that Jesus wasn't fully divine. Guess what? He quoted scripture to get there. He misused John 1 verse 14. He misused John 3 16 and even 1 John 4 9. Arianism, saying that Jesus wasn't fully divine. Second was docetism. We've talked about this in the book of 1 John. Docetist, from the, the Greek word dakeo, which means seems, they taught that Jesus was fully divine. They said he's God, but he only seems to be human. This was popularized by a guy named, by a guy named Apollinaris, who taught that Christ had a human body, but not a human mind or a human spirit. So we've got Arianism and Docetism. Third, Nestorianism. Nestorius denied the union of the two natures of Christ in one body. He taught that there was a human person and a divine person, but that they were completely separate from one another. Nestorianism. Fourth and finally, Eutychianism. Fun word. This heresy was taught by a man named Eutyches, who taught the confusion of the two natures. In other words, he taught that when the divine nature collided with the human nature of Jesus, that there was a third and new nature that resulted. Kind of like if you put a drop of ink in a glass of water. The new mixture isn't pure ink or pure water. It's a new substance. So who is Jesus? He's fully God and fully man. Two natures one God. There's mystery there. But that's the truth. And the Bible teaches this truth so clearly all over the place. 
And so John says, this is our first test. What does this particular teacher have to say about Jesus? Is the the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, behind what a particular person teaches? Jehovah's Witness. They teach that Jesus was a God, but not the God. Mormons will tell you that Jesus is God, but what they mean by that is very different than what the Scripture teaches. T.D. Jakes will tell you that there's one God, but that he doesn't exist as three persons all at the same time. He's a modalist. Stephen Furtick will tell you that God broke the law in the person of Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. If it was, we'd be doomed and still in our sin. Each of these false teachers teaches something false about the person of Jesus. John's saying to us, test the spirit behind the teacher by examining their Christology. Friends, John and I are telling you this morning that as Christians, you're called to be doctrinally intolerant. Don't put up with false teaching. That's not loving. It's not open-minded. It's dangerous. Doctrine matters. Who is Jesus? We define who Jesus is with biblical doctrine. And look at what John says in verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, there's a difference between the capital A Antichrist and the lowercase a Antichrist. Right here, John's talking about the lowercase a, Antichrist. And it's exactly like it sounds. Anti-Christ. Against Christ. Kevin DeYoung defines it this way. He says, The spirit of Antichrist is whatever confuses you about Christ, distracts you from Christ, anything that leads you to deny Christ with your words, your deeds, or whatever. Anything that makes you not concerned with the orthodox Christ. Do you see that when these false teachers teach you things that aren't true about Christ, that's that's exactly what they are. Antichrist. That's John's point. The capital A Antichrist loves nothing more than distorting the person of Christ for you through whatever means or person necessary. He takes what's true and good and beautiful about Jesus and distorts it or confuses it. When we use discernment, when we refute false teachers, we take that distorted picture and we bring clarity. We glorify Jesus by good doctrine. And I want us to hear this loud and clear. Doctrine and Christology aren't just for crusty ivory tower theologians. They're for everyone. Do you understand that this morning? Everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. You're either a good one or a bad one. But everyone's a theologian. You believe something about God. 
The issue is, is what you believe true or false? You're either a good theologian or a bad one. Church, we're not in neutral territory. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already, John says. If you, if you think we're floating along in some neutral no-fly zone, think again. Satan is running rampant in our world. He's using false teachers to distort the person of Jesus. Don't believe it. Be doctrinally intolerant. Test the spirits. And here's some good news. To talk about the, the Antichrist can be overwhelming. If it's not concerning to you, it should be. It certainly was to John's hearers who had watched the spirit of the Antichrist wreak havoc in their church. But look at what John says next. Point three, victory. Look with me at verses four and five. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. This is a glorious truth that John's teaching us here. He's pastorally reminding us of our identity and the implications of that identity. First, little children, you are from God. This is foundational. If you're in the middle of an onslaught from Antichrist, most, the most important thing that, for you to know is that you are a child of God. That's what's most foundational to who you are, a child of God. Not your age, not your sex, not your race, not your occupation, and not your accomplishments. Who you are at the most foundational level is a child of God. Little children, he says, you are from God. Now, the important implication, you are from God and have overcome them. Who's them? The Antichrist, the false teachers, any human or demonic force that's trying to distort Christ for you. And check out this word, it's amazing. You have overcome, overcome. Nikao is the word. It's a Greek word that means to conquer, to prevail, or to be victorious. It's a word that Phil Knight chose to represent his shoe company, by the way, a little company called Nike. That word means victorious or have overcome. If you're a child of God, if you're from God, you've conquered, prevailed, been victorious over the spirit of the Antichrist. Why? Because you're smarter? No. Because you're better? No. Because of who's in you. Look what John says. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is great news. Uh, let me ask you a question. Can God be conquered? Can God be conquered? No. Calvin says, we can no more be conquered than God himself can be conquered. That's right. Do you understand what John's teaching us? If God's spirit is in you, 
And that's true of every single believer, by the way. If his spirit is in you, you're victorious over any evil spirit that would seek to harm you or distort Christ for you. I fear that too often we tend to overestimate the power of Satan and underestimate the power of God. Church, they're not equal forces. It's not as if good and evil, God and Satan, are, are both out there on an equal playing field. No. He who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. So often, the people of God forget this. Think about God's people out in the desert. God had prepared the promised land for them. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they were about to finally go in. Let's read what happened. Numbers chapter 13 Verses 25 through 33. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back words to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are, we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Do you see what happened there? They overestimated the power of evil, and they underestimated the power of God. One of the reasons they did this was because they were so focused on themselves and not on the power of God. Understand this. If you are up against Satan and you're trying to do it on your own, you're right. He is too strong for you. But the focus here is on he who is in you, the spirit of God. If you're a Christian, he's in you, and you've overcome. You're victorious. That's what John's saying. Do you know that this morning? In your struggle with sin, Do you approach it as someone who's defeated and has no chance? Or do you approach it as someone who's victorious because of who's in you? As you try to wade through the barrage of false teaching, both outside and inside the church, do you approach it as someone who's defeated, simply thinking, I'm not smart enough or educated enough? Or... Do you approach it as someone who's victorious, 
because of who's in you. We can no more be conquered than God himself can be conquered. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And immediately following this truth, John says this, They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. In short, he's saying, you, Christian, are from God, but they, the false teachers, are from the world. And so, they speak the world's language, and the world laps it up. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised that many of these false teachers have massive followings. It's incredibly sad, and we should be grieved by it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. And this is why we can never play the numbers game as a church. Just because you have large numbers does not mean that you're a faithful church. To be clear, large doesn't necessarily mean unfaithful either. There are plenty of large, faithful churches, but numbers do not equal faithfulness. Joel Osteen packs out stadiums. He's a false teacher. He speaks the language of the world, that you'll be healthy and wealthy and you'll live your best life now. That is speaking from the world. And guess what? The world listens. Don't be overwhelmed by it. You've overcome them. And don't be surprised by it. Now, look at how John closes this section. Point four, truth and error. Look at verse six. He says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The pronouns here are vital. In verse 4, who was you? You are from God. Christians, right? And in verse 5, who was they? They are from the world. False teachers, antichrists. Now, in verse 6, John writes, we We are from God. Who is we? The apostles. And I want to be really clear here. Unless you're an apostle, capital A, meaning you've seen the risen Jesus and been explicitly commissioned by him, unless you're a capital A apostle, you can't say what John says here. He says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. In other words, as much as I hope that you're listening to what I'm preaching every week, and as much as I always try to stay tethered to the text of Scripture, I can't make the statement that if you're a Christian, you must listen to me. And if you don't listen to me, you're not from God. I can't say that. Those kinds of statements lead to authoritarian abuse in the church. Hear this, my only authority as a pastor is a derivative authority. 
Authority that is derived by being connected to God's word. See what John's saying here. He's saying that if you're a Christian, you listen to apostolic teaching. What's that? The Bible. If you're from God, you listen to the Bible. And if you're not from God, you don't listen to the Bible. Church, if I'm just up here giving you my ideas or my opinions each Sunday, don't listen to me. I'm wasting your time, and you should go somewhere else. My calling, my hope, and my prayer is for you to listen to the apostolic teaching. How can you do that? Those guys have been dead for thousands of years. How can you listen to the apostolic teaching? Listen to what Thabiti Anyabwile says here. He says that we can do this through a certain kind of preaching. The preaching that takes the apostles' words, explains their words, and applies their words is the kind of preaching that enables us to listen to them today. We call this expositional preaching because it exposes what the apostles have written and the meaning and application of their words. When you listen to the word of God expositionally preached, you are listening to the apostles, and ultimately you are listening to God himself. That's why we're so committed to, to expositional preaching here. My opinions don't matter. My hot takes are of little or no value. God's word is of infinite value. This is also why we stress Bible study. Expositional preaching is just one mode of listening to the apostles' teaching. But hear this. You, Christians, can read the Bible for yourselves. That was one of many truths that Martin Luther and the Reformers fought for. The Roman Catholic Church taught that only educated people could really handle the Bible rightly. And so they kept the Bible away from being translated into the common language of the people. If you're a Christian, who do you have living inside of you? The Holy Spirit. You can understand the Bible. He illumines truth for you as you read. A true child of God believes the Bible. They listen to the teachings of the apostles. Those of the, the world do not. So, as you look out over the landscape of teachers and churches and parachurch organizations, ask a couple of questions. Number one, what is their Christology? Who do they say Jesus is? And what's their view of the Bible? Are they tethered to the apostolic teaching? These aren't the only questions you should ask. But these are foundational. And look at what John says. He says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay. Well, before we close, I just want to give us some quick application points. I've intentionally skipped over this point so far so that I could bring it up now. The commands and the use in this text are all plural. 
They're y'alls. While John does want each individual Christian to be discerning, this is an application for all of us together corporately. So, application point one is this. Be corporate Bereans. Be corporate Bereans. What does that mean? Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 11. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Do you see that? Paul, other than Jesus, was the greatest teacher of all time. And these Bereans are commended for double-checking his teaching with the scriptures. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I want you coming skeptical to every sermon that I preach. God doesn't want us to be cynics. But I am saying I want you always listening to my and other sermons that you hear with Bibles open and eyes glued to them. If I'm not teaching you God's word, or if, God forbid, I'm teaching you something contrary to God's word, don't believe it. Be corporate Bereans with the teachings out there and in here. Communally discern truth and error. Be corporate Bereans. Second, have a solid Christology. Have a solid Christology. Gary Burge writes this. He says, John's call here is to build a Christian maturity that can use theological radar to spot intruders who want to upend the church's beliefs. This is high-tech radar that can tell the difference between a pleasure aircraft and a lethal bomber, between minor issues and colossal errors that deserve a fierce struggle. Our theological radar is built by knowing the real deal. You've heard this before, but bank tellers, they, they learn how to spot counterfeits, not by studying the counterfeits, but by knowing the real thing intimately. If you have a solid Christology, if you know your Bible well, counterfeits, intruders, lethal bombers aren't hard to spot. You'll recognize them instantly. So be corporate Bereans and have a solid Christology. Third, never divorce the spirit from the truth. Never divorce the spirit from the truth. What does John call the Holy Spirit in verse 6? The spirit of truth. So many today see a dichotomy between churches that are spirit-led and those that are theological. Now, hear this loud and clear. It's possible to be theological and to not be Christian at all. Remember, everyone's a theologian, and some are bad theologians. It's also possible to be spirit-led and to be completely in error. We see this all over the place, actually. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. These two realities should never be divorced. 
Anywhere the Spirit is, truth will be held high, specifically Christ. And anywhere the truth is actually held high, the Spirit will be pleased. His primary role, by the way, is to glorify Christ. So, be corporate Bereans. Have solid Christology and never divorce the spirit in the truth. In closing, I want to encourage us toward what I call humble orthodoxy. Humble orthodoxy. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see that? We're not called to be quarrelsome, but kind. We're to teach and correct with gentleness. So Santa Cruz Baptist Church, be discerning. Don't believe every spirit. Be willing to correct error and do it with the humility of Christ, all the while knowing that you've overcome because of who's in you. Let's pray.